Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. We're already recording, so I'm just going to get down to it. Champagne Sharks. And this is T, Trevor. You can find us on patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. Become a patron and all that good stuff. You get all the goodies. But more importantly, let's talk about who is joining us today. And I'm going to start with the order everyone is on my screen just to make it easier. So I'll start with uh, Dr. Purcell, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and letting people know uh, who you are and where to find you and what your specialty is. Sure. Um, my name is uh, Rich Purcell. I'm a professor in the English department at Carnegie Mellon University uh, in the Literary and Cultural Studies program. My work's primarily in um, Black literature after 1945. Um, in the last, I would say, eight years, I've been moving from primarily looking at literature. Um, and my interest in literature is actually looking at the relationship between Black writers and um, the emergence of uh, the state, CIA, State Department, and their interest in the Congress for Cultural Freedom and the way they use Black writers and um, the, 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 the discussions around civil rights um, to uh, shift the conversation around race in the United States. Um, but that was one phase of my work. I'm kind of working more in, in media studies now. Uh, and so most of the stuff I write about, which is about media, which is why I'm very excited to talk to all of you. Um, and I'll, uh, should I pass it off to uh, Dr. Burroughs? Uh, uh, yeah. uh, sure, definitely. But uh, real quick, isn't there a book that's actually about how the FBI played a role in the yeah. Uh, black arts movements. Um, your work sounds similar to that. that yeah. was it, was it FB, FBI's? I actually just FBI's, that's exactly right. Um, so that's really important work. Uh, there is a lot, actually, there's been quite a bit of stuff published on this since the late 70s into the present. Uh, one of the other big books that came out, this was, I would say, in the late 90s, was um, Francis Saunders' uh, book about the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Um, and there is also um, Hugh Wilford wrote the uh, the Mighty Wolitzer, generally about the role that the CIA and the State Department had in the realm of the arts and culture. But yes, FBI is, is the one that was looking at the FBI files on black writers um, and artists in the U.S. And the stuff I'm writing, I wrote about was primarily about the relationship between black writers and these organizations. They actually were basically CIA fronts. <laughs> um, the Culture Congress for Cultural Freedom is a whole list of um, literary journals uh, in the 50s into the early 60s that were found out after 1968 to be have funding by the CIA. But all that funding was kind of you know, channeled through other organizations, like uh, granting organizations and, and other, I, I don't want to say shell organizations, but, you know, through other funds. And so what my research was about was, you know, looking at the relationship between writers who published in these periodicals, who are part of these organizations, and how their ideas about race, about what then was called the Negro problem, was kind of, um, was, uh, was, 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 
spotlighted over and above, you know, and this is kind of apropos, uh, uh, Dr. Bros talked about the original eyes of the prize, and it kind of reminds me of this, over other ideas about Black liberation and freedom. And so there's a very considered effort you know, after the after this after the Second World War into the Cold War of kind of marginalizing more radical decolonial ideas um, and for more moderate liberal ideas about um, race and integration. And so my my first book kind of talked about that and the role of some writers in that. And the writer that I primarily focus on is actually Ralph Ellison, who's one of my favorite writers, but also has a very oh, uh, kind of fraught relationship with all these um, organizations during well, his career. Well, what I read from Arnold Rampersand is that Ralph Ellison had a fraught relationship with everybody who's not Ralph Ellison. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. And, and, yeah. and, and to the white people that Ralph Ellison worshipped. I mean, Rampersand, I mean, he was so critical on Ellison. You could just tell, like, he, he did not miss one negative thing Ellison did. And, and, I, and you know, I love biography. I'm a student of biography, and I've written a biography. I've written a biography with Mia Bujamal. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I do my... Do my critiques on Mamiya Bujamal too, but but you could tell Rampersand was just like, I don't like this guy. Like you could tell he liked Langston Hughes, mm-hmm. but he did not like Ellison. Um, I, th- I, and, I think Albert Murray... Did Ellison ever have problems with Albert Murray? Because that seems to be they the only person... Exactly. No, yeah. no, that was his only friend. He, yeah, that was the only guy Murray. I've never seen Ellison talk bad about, was Albert Murray. No, Murray was the only person he liked. In fact, in fact, mm-hmm. Ellison was such an elitist, according to Rampersand, Ellison thought Romeo Bearden was like, you know, some kind of, you know, flaky artist guy, you know, who they who they let hang with him. Mm. Right. I mean, that's how elitist Ellison was, at least and that's how Rampersand portrays him. But Dr. Purcell, it's very interesting your your comments because I'm wait, 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 wait. Take the time studies. to introduce yourself real quick before you uh, answer um, so people my know name who's is Todd speaking. Stephen Burroughs, uh, <laughs> and, and I think Dr. Purcell's work is much more important than my introduction. So I'll just say I'm a historian, journalist, and comic book geek. Now, let me let me jump into what Dr. Purcell said because I thought what he said was very significant. I have three degrees in journalism, but I, I also am into that kind of writer experience too, particularly that post-World War II writer experience. And I'm kind of obsessed with, uh, you know, with Baldwin, with uh, Gordon Parks, and uh, with Alex Haley, right? So, so I really enjoyed what you said because, see, right over here, it's it's off camera, but right over here, I have the two brand new books on the Black Lives Matter phenomenon from the perspective of writers. I have the New Yorker anthology, and I have this this other uh, book done by done solely by Black journalists called Say Their Names. And I'm going to review these books, but I'm going to review these books from the perspective of, okay, to what degree have we completely embraced hegemony? To what degree have we completely embraced all of the frames that people have given us uh, because they don't want the discussion to go into directions that they don't want, which of course are Black nationalism, Pan-Africanism, socialism, et cetera. And so, you know, the fact that these frameworks, I mean, Dr. Ball is the expert on this. And when he comes in, believe me, he's going to talk about how all of this stuff has been framed for us and how we've, we've accepted those frames. But what's interesting to me is that um, there's very little decolonized work on Black Lives Matter. There's very little decolonized work on our current situation. I mean, the only thing I can point to is, you know, Black Power Media, particularly Dr. Ball's interviews with Daruba bin Wahad. Um, so... Oh, and I can point to this also. The other night, I was watching a Zoom on Black revolutionary writers, and Asha Bandele read a draft of her first chapter on her As Told To book about, um, and from the perspective of first person, autobiography of uh, Sekou Odinga. Mm-hmm. And so some of this stuff is coming out. Like, some of this stuff is coming out. Like, 
and 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 we have to read all of it. I think we have to read all of it, and I think we have to have a very clear analysis over or analysis on colonized black writing versus decolonized black writing. Because one of the things I learned from my Mumia biography, that I, my, the draft which I've written, um, is that Mumia is a revolutionary, and revolutionaries don't follow the Roberts rules of order of the established society, right? So even when I disagree with Mumia and criticize Mumia, I have to ask myself, okay, are you criticizing him because this is a worthy criticism? Are you criticizing him because you are a colonized writer and the fact that he's hmm. so colonized bothers you? And, and this is something I dealt with because I just did a 12,000 word essay on Mumia's conflict with the National Association of Black Journalists. The National Association of Black Journalists in 1995 we're going to have their convention in Philadelphia and did have their convention in Philadelphia the exact weekend that Mumia was originally slated to be executed. And I did this whole essay showing all of the national black journalists' positions on this because, you know, they viewed it as a public relations problem, right? But clearly it was an ideological problem. Mumia uh, was a member of theirs, was a, was a founding member of the, of the Philadelphia chapter, which predated the national chapter, right? So he's clearly a journalist in all... Forms, but see when the when the black journalists who represent NABJ were on WBAI and they you know they wanted to come on to, because they had this new position they waited to the white groups said okay he's got First Amendment issues so they came on saying well we're with the white groups right <laughs> with his First Amendment issues but it was telling because the host Julie Drizzen asked the two black journalists who were representatives of NABJ okay you have this new position but okay you're an organization of black journalists who work for major newspapers have any of you pushed for Mumia's uh, articles to be in your papers. And they said, no, we haven't done that. Now, a couple of journalists did, because I know the Baltimore Sun printed them in a couple other places, but the fact that they hadn't even thought of that, right, shows you where they're at. And, and you know, <coughs> we have complicated relationships with NABJ, those of us who love NABJ and love Black people, love Black journalists. I'm a scholarship winner. I'm an internship winner. I was one of the first few people to get both those awards. And even Mumia addressed them in 2005. Like that's like the postscript of my of my my essay, and you know he pushed them to go further, you know, et cetera. So I love what you're doing, Dr. Purcell, and I'm very excited that you're doing it because, you know, the the point that I think we're going to talk about in terms of this Eisner Prize phenomenon is is this idea of presenting decolonized information as colonized information, and I think we need to, you know, even within our own contradictions, right? I think we need to explain the differences between those things so that people can recognize colonized information when they see it, and they can recognize decolonized information when they see it, so that they don't marginalize decolonized information as, you know, the way Michelle Alexander does, right, in her book. Her whole book is about how I became a liberal radical, right? Michelle Alexander with the new Jim Crow, she talked about how she would confront these decolonized information, and it would repel her. And then she did all the statistical work and found out what? They were right. And so we need that analysis. Um, so I just wanted to say that in lieu of my introduction, because I think what you said was much more important than going into my CV and all that. And uh, I would I like to have uh, you on sometime, uh, Richard, to talk about that exact uh, topic and expertise. But, uh, I actually was already going to ask you, uh, when Passing comes out, I wanted to have you on to talk about Passing, because I think that book, they're making a movie about it on Netflix, but I think that book has a very, very interesting literary history as far as propaganda, and it's being used for different purposes in every in every era. And I think Absolutely. this is probably the most superficial use I've seen kind of 
it resurrected for, but we can save that for when it comes out. I think November yeah, 1st is when it, when it comes out on on Netflix. But uh, we have with us uh, Vita. We're going in order. And uh, Dr. Ball just joined us as well. So yeah, v- Vita, let people know who you are. For This is the first time. <laughs> oh, hey, it's Vita, um, fellow Champagne Shark. Um, really fascinated by this discussion. And just to what both of you have just said, um, just to be clear, you guys are very degreed and you guys are clearly very well read. You guys are naming things so quickly. Y'all got to slow down because <laughs> I've <laughs> never heard of 90% of the people you guys are naming and people cannot Google that fast. So keep in mind, a lot of your listeners don't have these degrees. You know, we don't, not all of yeah. us have the this language. So just want you guys to slow down a little bit because <laughs> you guys are raising some really, really, really good points. And I don't want listeners to get lost because, you know, we're talking to each other like we're all, you know, um, right. familiar with these people. <laughs> and I've never heard of most of these people. And some of these are new names, too. So just so when we're talking, I just want to remind everybody, make sure we slow down a little bit, name people. So that way, if they hear a book that you're naming, OK, let me go Google that. Or let me write that down. Just keep that in mind for the listeners. Um, but I definitely am super interested in the work that you guys are doing, because I actually these are things sometimes I think many of us think about, but we don't always have the words to articulate. Because I feel like that uh, very much so, you know, you can see the colonized art you can see how the conversation changes and i think the documentary we're discussing today is like exactly all the thoughts i had that you guys just said i was wondering exactly about that i said why the fuck are we getting this type of content for something that's supposed to be documentation of a movement right or movements right so i just want to make sure that everybody really hears what y'all are saying because you guys are literally putting to words what I think so many of us are thinking. And I want to appreciate you guys for doing that um, very much so. Because as you guys are talking right now, I was like, oh, that's what I was trying to say when I was watching this documentary, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, this I, I, I want to add to something real quick that you were saying uh-huh. too. Uh, if you guys can keep in mind, as far as what Vita said with uh, the books and everything, I was going to ask you if after this is over, you guys want to send me like a list of what you think are the four or five most important books that you mentioned. I know everyone's going to ask me, I couldn't yeah. make out this thing. What did he say? <laughs> After Absolutely. the recording, feel free to like, you know, uh, send to this to my email, like what you think are the most important books out of the ones you mentioned that you think people should read. And we'll put them in the in the show notes. But, you know, still keep in mind what Vita said about, uh, you know, going slow. Because everybody ain't going to read the show notes. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> being honest. But I do want but I do want the gist of the information because the content, what you guys are saying is super rich and you guys are literally putting towards. I did not know anything about the CIA funding uh, black art, anything or funding black organizations that did art. I didn't even know anything about that. So that's brand new information to me. I want to do a whole show on that. So you make sure you mark that in your calendar because you and I are going to do that one because I need to learn <laughs> more about this. OK, and I, my, my ADHD makes it difficult for me to read all the time. So I, it's better for me to just talk. To you. <laughs> um, but th- yeah. So anyway, I'm Vita Star. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on here. And go ahead, T. <laughs> uh, yeah. And we have Dr. Ball. And, and you know, what I'm doing is I'm addressing everybody formally, you know, the first time. But, you know, just to keep it informal, I'll just go first name uh, basis after this. But uh, Dr. Jared Ball just uh, joined us. People know who you are, but just in case this is someone's first episode. Uh, again, I only appreciate the doctor being remembered at this point because I'm still paying for it. So that's, <laughs> that's my, my standard joke and routine. Uh, but, but, uh, Jared Ball and I'm a professor of Africana and media studies at Morgan State University. 
currently the only official faculty in our Black Studies program. Wow. So we're, we're, we're just fresh out the gate building one. Yeah, that's deep. And, and, and why that's the case at an HBC was a whole other episode for discussion. But yeah. Uh, anyway, so I'm very happy to be here and, and, and big apologies for running late. Uh, the soccer dad thing had us, uh, man. And then I didn't realize you were being literal. We said soccer No, dad. I was being you're, literal, man. We were at, we were at an dad. away game tournament in Delaware. Oh, wow. And, and 95 got trafficked up for no reason. Oh, but and, now I especially you know, appreciate you being here. Like you, uh, had to hustle like a little, little ways to make it to join us. So. No, yeah, it's an honor. Yeah, we don't take it for granted. No, it's yeah. If if I if I stopped everything for for my children's schedule, I wouldn't do anything. So I got I got. <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> uh, so so what we were thinking, um, Todd has to leave first. So uh, we're talking about eyes and the prize. That's the topic. I'm sure you've heard us uh, mention it several times already. And there's a new eyes on the prize called Eyes on the Prize Hallowed Ground, and I'm not sure even what to call it. I don't know if we can call it a documentary or an ad. <laughs> or whatever because next thing i heard is that there's actually a new (laughs) eyes in the prize coming that's more in line with being an official documentary so i don't know if this was to wet appetites i don't know if this was just a resume booster i don't know what this thing was but it was not a documentary it was they invented something it's like the documentary (laughs) version of an advertorial that they have in the magazines where it's like you think it's an article until you get halfway through and it says and and now by gillette it's like oh wait this was an ad, you know, it, it feels like that. It's, it's well, very bizarre all, to me. They were all Patrice's homies. So maybe it was just their way of getting, you know, acting credit. Tia, you, you took all the comments I was going to make. So, I mean, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll just make my quick comments and then and then I'll hear the rest of you guys. And then I'll go into the eyes and the prize main. Look, I mean, let me, let me just say the one positive thing that, that Patrice <laughs> did out of this, this um, infomercial. Um, the one. The one positive thing. <laughs> Is that I was I was impressed that she and whoever the relative of Henry Hampton was who helped her do this. I was impressed that they critiqued the heteronormity of Eyes and the Prize. Mm-hmm. I was impressed with that. But that's it. <laughs> because the rest of it was, you know, a nice kind of art film that that li- literally just just promoted her and Black Lives Matter. And and really, with the exception of the heteronormative critique, really is not worth worth discussing on on my part. That's why, I like what you said, T, because it just it just said it. But I I know that that Dr. Ball is going to go deeper, so I look forward to, to hearing this. Yeah, and I'm so sick of the Jordan Peele aesthetic. Like it was trying. Like, I'm like, it's supposed to be a horror movie. Why is it like a headless thing? Like what does that have to do with anything? Like the baptism. Like, I was yeah, I confused. Like, I like Dancing us, and fire. Us them good hair get out it was just like okay what's hot now we've got to do this so this thing is like dated by the time it airs i think worse Mm. than eyes on the prize like i watched the original eyes on the prize before this and then i watched this and i'm like how does this already feel more dated than something i just watched that was set in the 80s it's funny you said that because i just watched Candyman last night speaking of jordan (laughs) peele executive produced work I didn't watch so it. I'm sure, I'm sure it had the yeah. same aesthetics as the new same aesthetic, the same yeah. aesthetic. Uh, uh, yeah. But actually, I think Candyman is more radical than this Eyes on the, on, on mm. the Prize uh, documentary. Mm. Wow. As someone who snuck in to see Candyman, I agree. Yeah, I, I snuck in to see it. 
I just wanted to say though, I'm, I don't see how you're impressed with what they did. I didn't learn anything. Mm-hmm. Like even the address in addressing the hetero heteronormativity mm-hmm. of the prize. How does being they didn't, nice. It did not give it didn't it first of it was like 30 seconds and it did it basically just mentioned it and they just had a bunch of quotes and then that was it. I didn't get any new information. I didn't really learn. They just listed a bunch of names. <laughs> I wanted to actually get like get in there, like really tell them something in depth. Don't just name one iconic person in history and then have no other information about it. It was just super weird. But they I learned talked nothing. About, they barely talked about the iconic people. They only brought them up long enough to say, and we're the new queer people. Right, so, right, exactly. So, so now right, for exactly. us. So even bringing up the heteronormative stuff, like I w- I'm open <laughs> to the argument that it was too heteronormative, but uh, you don't even stay on it long enough. You have such gold for right. I learned jump, nothing because you're so interested in patting your own resume and being an yep. influencer that you're really talking about yourself when you talk about Marsha P. Johnson and the rest of these people. And right. everybody you made right. on top of that is such lowest comedy nominator basic. Like, okay, Marsha P. Johnson and then a slave. They brought up a slave <laughs> that might have been a transgender. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not even the era that Eyes in the Prize covers. You're just pulling out gay people. Like, it's not even coherent. <laughs> and then you're jumping that's to yourself. True. Yeah, so no, that's that, actually true. That kind of bothered me, but um, the way we were going to do this, especially because Todd has to go first, Todd had a critique of the original Eyes on the Prize, and I'll be honest, I am one of those hook, line, and sinker buy into the original Eyes on the Prize, so this is going to be a learning oh, moment for I me. shit ton of criticisms of the original. You really, oh, see? Yeah, yeah, I'm very <laughs> uncritical. I, I think it's like but you nostalgia. know, But you know, I, I, I bet I can tell, I bet I can know why you're uncritical, because... I was, let's see how old, I was 19 when I was in the prize first. And there's only one reason that I'm critical of it. And and Dr. Ball, I'm sorry, I'm going to bore you on this. You've heard me say this two million times. This is two million the first time. I was raised in the New York metropolitan area, but specifically Newark, New Jersey. We had five black public affairs television shows that aired on the weekends. Five. If we count the national Tony Brown's journal, and if we count the national uh, Essence magazine. Right. The most radical of these programs was the one that aired on the ABC affiliate, and it was called Like It Is with Gil Noble. Oh, I watched that all the time when I was. That was so good. Right. Mm, And Like It Is. The Doc Perry episode. Right. And Like It Is, and yes, yeah, everybody remembers. Everybody remembers the double episode. Absolutely. But who again? Say his name again for me. I'm I'm sorry, Darthar Perry, who was the uh, black informant who. uh, infiltrated several black organizations and destroyed several black organizations um, on the West Coast. She's they're, asking they're, about Gil Noble, like it is with Gil Noble. Oh, 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 oh I thought she was asking about Dorothy Perry. I I'm think sorry. that's what that. Yeah, I, yeah, 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 like it is with Gil Noble. Yeah. Like it is with Gil Noble was a black public affairs program that aired on WABC television, the New York affiliate of WABC TV, from 1968 to I was I was like three months old when it aired. And it ended in 2011 after Gil Noble had a stroke and died. And it is one of the best archival programs, uh, along with, by the way, another program coming out of the South called For the People with Mr. Velt Middleton. These two programs were two of the best programs that Black people ever produced about Black history, Black culture, and Black politics. And a simple YouTube search in fact, Gil Noble's memorial is on YouTube, right? A simple, a simple YouTube search 
for Like It Is with Gil Noble and Lister Bell Middleton and For the People, you'll find hours and hours of things. Some are, some are more edited than others, right? Because I can tell some people like certain content and edited content out they didn't like, right? But you'll find hours of content about what these two Black men produced. Um, and the reason I bring up Like It Is is because, see, Like It Is in 1980, and I didn't watch it in 1980, but the great thing about Like It Is it would always repeat and would repeat it's serious because they would do they would not only do documentaries, they would do series of documentaries. So one of the things they did in 1980 was called A Decade of Struggle. Now it's clear that Gil Noble sold it to the to the affiliate by going, oh, you know, I'm gonna do uh, the, the black movement from the point of view of the students, right? That was the name of it. But when you really watch a decade of struggle, these three parts, it's about the black radical movement. And everything in a decade of struggle, as, as Paul Lee told me, Paul Lee, one of the, the little, maybe the greatest researcher and, and historian on Malcolm X that's alive, right? He was part of Gil Noble's uh, film staff back then. And he said, you know, we made sure that we never stopped pointing the finger. That's what he told me. And, and so when you grow up with this kind of radical content, I mean, Gil Noble did five documentaries on Malcolm X, right? We're not going to talk about all the other documentaries he did. Um, but when you grow up with that kind of radical content, you know, when I watched Eyes and the Prize, I thought it was kind of vanilla, even though I loved it. And see, that's why I understand what T is saying, because when you're 18, 19, 20, and you've never seen, like, those dog hoses, you've never seen Attica. I mean, even I even heard Sister Soldier talk about this in a speech once. She said, you know, because Eisner Prize 2 came out when there was this kind of militancy like we have today. And and Sister Soldier said, you know, when when when, when those brothers saw Attica, because we had never seen Attica, we had never heard of Attica, right? Um, and so that was my first time seeing Attica when I was 20, 21 years old, watching Eisner Prize 2. And I didn't, I didn't know who George Jackson was, who they very briefly mentioned to, to transition out of the movement into the prison movement that they don't, and they don't mention anything George Jackson says, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Why? Because there's a reason why as the prize is the way it is. So when you, when you see all of that, you know, you can make comparisons. So in New York, we were spoiled. We could make comparisons. Well, you know, Eisen Prize is pretty good, but Eisen Prize is no like it is. So let me just take a couple of minutes and talk about Eisen Prize uh, from a hegemonic point of view. Um, and then I'll leave you. And then I'll leave you. Uh, Dr. Ball, this, I'm going to bring up some stuff we did in our conversation about Ken Burns, and I, I, I would like to suggest, because uh, I thought that was one of our greatest conversations about history, uh, that you go check out Black Power Media's um, uh, talk with Dr. Ball, and I talked at length about Ken Burns. But I want to talk about to Black Power Media altogether and just watch everything on there. Oh, I want Dr. Ball to scrap that. I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! Wait, go. Yeah, were, you, were, you, were you asking? Oh, I, yeah, no. Blackpowermedia.org um, is. Uh, you were asking. I thought you were just saying go subscribe. I didn't. I didn't oh, hear. Oh, I was saying go subscribe. But I think. Uh, I think oh, Todd I, I wanted, you, wanted you to uh, explain what you guys talked yeah, about. It. Oh, to right. describe the conversation. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I mean, it was a discussion around Ken Burns. It was well. Well, his daughter Sarah Burns is directed his executive directed documentary series nominally about Muhammad Ali um, uh, and uh, yeah, Muhammad Ali and his relationship to Islam and him his becoming a man of peace and an American hero. Uh, and uh, uh, it's so anyway. Todd and I just had a great conversation about all that is wrong in the history as it's laid out in that series 
all that is wrong in Ken Burns's place as this sort of national, all-knowing historian and, and, and soul voice uh, historian. And then a little bit, what I also liked that we did was a little bit of a, of, of, uh, a, a, a discussion, uh, an academic discussion of the relationship between academic his, historians and popular culture, media, and documentary film. Uh, so what happens when the documentary replaces history? And as, as Ken Burns Absolutely. is said to have said, when, when he, you know, he, he wants to kill, he wants to save the histor- history that academic historians have murdered was his word. Absolutely. So if he's, if he's, if he's doing that work <laughs> <laughs> and replacing all of academic history, uh, you know, that there's some problems. So that's what we were talking about. Excellent. Excellent summary. Thank you. Now, now let me just do a very quick chronology because I want to talk about primarily three people. I want to talk about Henry Hampton and the context of Ali Missouri, which is never done. Right. And I know Dr. Ball is going to jump in on that because I know he, he definitely had some exposure with Allen, Missouri, but, but this all ties in. And then I want to talk about how Henry Hampton was replaced by Henry Louis Gates. All right. So in 10 minutes, I'm going to give you the 10-minute version of this. So I'm, I'm going to speak slowly because I heard what the sister said. So if the thesis is true that Black people are conservative, moderate, liberal, and radical, regardless of the programming of this country, now that's a thesis that may or may not be true. But if that is true, right? then we have to believe that Henry Hampton is a moderate and that from the very beginning, while the movement was going on, he was thinking, okay, this needs to be recorded. This needs to be archived. This needs to be presented as film. And before I criticize Henry Hampton, I just want to say what we always need to be grateful for Henry Hampton for is that he rescued all of that local footage around the country that was about to be erased. Now, it is newsroom policy to erase old film. Gil Noble, again, what like it is, he lucked out because he actually had access to the ABC film library, which was then called the Grinberg. Now it's called something else. So he had access to the tapes they didn't erase on the national level. But Henry Hampton always needs to get our praise for going and finding all that local footage before they erased it and taking it and using it. However, however, because Henry Hampton is a moderate coming out of the Episcopal Church, um, he wanted to do something that people would be able to see. And he understood the problems that you had if you produce public television. Because public television originally would be educational television as, as formed by Lyndon Johnson. It was supposed to speak to the concerns of Blacks, Latinos, and others. And initially it did in certain, certain shows that happened in the late 60s, early 70s. But as public television grew, it became more and more a, a vehicle for the elite and more and more a vehicle for hegemonic perspectives. So you have the Rockefellers and all these major foundations giving all of this money. While Henry Hampton is dealing with Eyes and the Prize, you have a, another scholar named Ali Missouri who does this documentary series called The Africans. Um, I think it was called a triple history or a triple study or something like that. And triple heritage. Dr. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ball. And so... He does this. Uh, he does this. This documentary series. Some would say from the perspective of the Africans. Some would say from the perspective of Islam. I know that that that's an Africana studies discussion, Doctor Ball, and I know you you there. But let's say this: the powers that be did not like the fact that they paid for it. And I remember Ali Missouri Missouri being on like it is, and Gilno was showing a clip of Mrs. Cheney 
who was head of the National Endowment for the Arts and National Endowment for the Humanities, talking about what a mistake it was to fund Alley, Missouri. So Henry Hampton, as a moderate, sets up a framework. Now, here's a framework he sets up. He gets all the Black radical scholars together, and they're the consultants. And that includes uh, Dr. Ball's mentor, Dr. James Turner of Cornell uh, University. He's very, he's very um, prominently displayed in the credits of both Eisner Prize. But the group of scholars don't write, direct, and produce Eisner Prize. There is not one aspect of Eisner Prize that is not co-written, co-directed, and co-produced by whites. Every episode is co-written, co-produced, co-directed by them. Why? Because the white comfort level has to be maintained. This is why the first Eisner Prize is the fairy tale Montgomery story. But the Montgomery story, by the way, is the comic book published by, um, I forget the group, The Reconciliation of Christians and Jews, something like that. But they, they publish a comic book about the Montgomery bus boycott. And it's a comic book, according to um, the historian, um, I forget her name. I forget her name. But according to um, a major historian, King and the Montgomery activists literally adapt the story of this comic book, this PR comic book, as their public relations. Danielle McGuire is a historian. I'm sorry, Danielle McGuire, the dog in the street. She talks about how they decided to do this because we know that during the Montgomery bus boycott, not only was King not nonviolent, but King was a registered handgun owner and a proud one. All right. This whole nonviolent Gandhi thing happens after the Montgomery bus boycott. When he goes to India at 30 years old, King goes to India and learns from Gandhi's disciples. And then he comes back and then he starts forming to be the Martin Luther King we know. But the point is that Eisner Prize loves that, that mythology. And so they do the whole first part about this mythology. You, you learn nothing about the Bandung Conference. You learn nothing about the stirrings of revolution in Africa and Asia. And, and you know, according to Eisner Prize, it has absolutely nothing to do with the story. And you see that even in the graphic of Eisner Prize, when it comes on, these black people are marching what? Under the American flag. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You, you don't, I don't think you realize that you're saying so much and it's wonderful. Oh my God. Because remember how I was saying how you guys were saying things that articulate exactly what I'll be feeling? That's exactly sure. how I felt from some, I, something told me. I, I know I'm hyper excited about what you're saying right now. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Because as a person who's like, you know, I be th- I, I be thinking it and I be like feeling this shit, but I can't always put my finger on it. One of the key things you said a second ago was that every part was co-written, co-directed, co-whatever, co-produced by a, at least one white person, right? Because they and that's how I felt the whole time. Then you talk about the Ameri- walking on the American flight. I felt I felt like why is this? How is this supposed to be giving us a black perspective? It feels so patriotic. It felt. Like, because it was so much, almost like, you know, this is, we're creating this new America, you know, kind of thing. Eisner Prize, the the subtitle for the first series is called what? America's Civil Rights Year. What is the subtitle of the second one called? What is the subtitle of the second one called? America at the Crossroads. Right. So let's let's continue with this. Let's continue (laughs) with this. So they march, they march under the American flag and the graphic for Eisner Prize comes out of the American flag and yes. they're marching. It's the merging of the two. Right. Right? Okay. Yes. So we know automatically, now just from the visual, we know automatically where Hampton is going, right? So he does the first part and, and, and he includes Malcolm X, a small little clip of Malcolm X 
in the beginning part of the last episode. Yes. Right? Wait, 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 wait. Please, right hold, on, hold on, hold on, right hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, look, Go right ahead. look, okay. So I was, I was watching one of the things that always bothers me about black history documentation, especially when it comes to the civil rights movement, they only talk about that one perspective. Nobody talks about the black people who actually had a whole other perspective on desegregation, such as no Malcolm X, defense, right? no such as Zora Neale Hurston. In fact, they blacklisted her, right? right. Um, because she was like, I'm from, a, I'm from an all black town. We have, I have a whole different outlook on what right. you're talking about, right? right. And they blacklisted her um but you never hear about the black people and the radicals who were saying something totally different outside of this one narrative that you're always giving your entire life about what the black perspective is the black historical narrative for civil rights is i and and that's one of the things that frustrated me so much because i grew up in a very militant household i learned the other stuff right so when i watch these shows it also melts it, it makes sense what we're seeing in a lot of these mainstream black media spaces. And it again, goes back to what you guys were talking about, about colonized art and colonized writing, right? Right. These, this is an example of exactly what you're talking about. And it's, it's, it's mind blowing to me because I couldn't figure out exactly why I felt so strongly about that aspect of it. The only good thing to me was the footage. <laughs> the same people who fund, who funded Ali Missouri and regretted it are the same people who funded Henry Hampton, and they're the same people who fund Ken Burns. It's hard. They're Can I the interrupt same for one second? people. Right? I just recently watched the, um, the episode of Eyes on the Prize about the March on Washington. This is to your point. I don't want to, I'm not trying to hijack. I'm trying to no, no, kind of go with the flow of the conversation. And I noticed for the first time, if I'm not mistaken, that the primary footage for that episode comes from James Blue's film, The March, right? Which was, um, which was produced in 1964. I mean, it's the exact same footage. And what's interesting about James Blue, James Blue was a film director, documentary filmmaker for the mid 20th century. And The March is a very fascinating cinematic document because it was produced by the United States Information Agency. This is going back to our previous conversation, which used to create documentaries for the American government and circulate them abroad and show them to basically unaligned other countries as a way of making an argument for the soundness of American democracy. And so this is just leads to your point. I never, I didn't put that together until last night. I watched it like a couple of nights ago that Henry Hampton's documentary uses footage, this is also to your point, from the propaganda arm of the United States government in the 1960s in the 80s version of the Eyes on the Prize documentary. So I want to interject that because what you were saying also got me, I was, it just aligns with something I was just thinking about and kind of astounded. I, I just, I'd forgotten about that because I just recently watched the entire series recently and I was like, oh my goodness, like this is and, James and, and, let me, and, let, and let me align with what you're saying because let's talk about the ultimate symbolism to March on Washington. There was a white man, I think he was a Catholic priest. You know where I'm going with this, Dr. Purcell. He stood by the speakers. What was his job? When you read deep into the history books, you read deep into the March on Washington, his job was to turn off the mic if he heard something he didn't like. So we're not really talking about women not being able to speak at all, right? That, you know, other than some like introductory comments or whatever. We're not really talking about John Lewis's speech 
being heavily censored and him being forced to do that. We're also talking about on top of all of that, we're talking about a white guy standing by the mic saying on top of all of that, if I, if I hear something I don't like, I'm pulling the plug on this. So we, we see how the, the debate is very narrowly defined, right? So to go back to Hampton and Eyes and the Prize, we owe Hampton for two things. We owe Hampton for saving that footage and we owe Hampton for those hours and hours of interviews he did with everybody when they were still young, right? Which he did put in books. So, you know, we, we appreciate that. But we've got to talk about this in the same perspective. So if you've got the people who fund you, there's certain things they don't want to hear, certain things they don't want to see, and they've made it clear with the Alley, Missouri uh, situation that they don't want that, then you fit what they want, right? So you have this, this first part, and, and I want to show you how deep hegemony goes, because the first part won all sorts of awards. Henry Hampton was the greatest thing since sliced cheese. It was a wonderful experience, right? So normally when you do something that well, the funding for the second part is automatic. Henry Hampton talked about the years he spent and the frustrations he, he had trying to get funding for Eisner Prize 2. Why? Because Eisner Prize 2 would go from 1966 to 1982. And even though Henry Hampton's ending is completely American, right? Black people becoming mayors, et cetera, et cetera. You still had to go through all of the radical parts of American society that nobody wanted, nobody who, who was doing the funding wanted to deal with. Remember, this is still during the Reagan and Bush administrations where Eyes the Prize is coming out. We can't, we can't, we can't um, deny that. I mean, we can't uh, ignore that. Eyes the Prize comes out in 87. Eyes the Prize 2 comes out in 1990 during the Reagan and Bush administrations. So here you have the second part where Malcolm X is quickly introduced and dispatched in the first half hour because <laughs> they want to go back to Martin Luther King <laughs> and marching in the South, right? You have a decent portrayal of the Black Panther Party, um, and they try to make it as conservative as they could, right? Because you never hear people talk about Marxism or anything like that in Eisen Prize. Marxism is a banned word from PBS. Now, I don't know that for a fact. I just know I never hear the word, right? Um, so, you know, they go to, like I said, conservative view of the Black Panthers. They go deep into the assassination of Martin Luther King and combine that with Black Power. They go into Gary. But, but again, to show you how conservative the format is, like I said, George Jackson is introduced not as a radical revolutionary, but as a prisoner's. And he very quickly is introduced as a prisoner's voice. And you see Soledad Brother, the cover, right? And Dr. Purcell, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. That cover begins to shrink. <laughs> Am I right? Yes. Am I right? That cover begins to shrink. And Julian Bond goes into, and the uh, the uh, writings of George, which he never defines, never explains. He says, in the writings of George Jackson, uh, bring to light the prisoners' struggles. And uh, one of the places that the prisoners' struggle was Attica. And then they got to Attica, and then they do this whole Attica, then they do a situation with Attica. And there was no way to de-radicalize Attica, right? So they had no choice but to show what really happened there and, and, and how incredible it was. Um, and then after Attica and after Gary, oh, that's it. That's the end of the radical movement. That's done. Because now we got to switch to Atlanta and talk about Maynard Jackson and all these black mayors, et cetera. And so they switch to that. And then it becomes black people now having access to the American dream and utilizing it for everybody. 
I want to emphasize that part for everybody, right? So when you deal with Eisner Prize, you have an extremely hegemonic structure, but it doesn't seem hegemonic if that's the only thing you've ever seen. If that's the only thing you've ever seen, it's the greatest thing in the world. But because I grew up with Gil Noble and all these other folks, I was like, no, nah, this, ain't, this ain't it. I mean, I, and, and I'm like the sister. I couldn't articulate at 19, 20, 21, the difference between the two or, or, the, or the significant difference between the two. But, but I knew that, that what, um, what Gil Noble was doing resonated more with me than what Henry Hampton is doing. Now, I'm about to go. I just want to say one more thing. And, and I know Dr. Ball is going to um, kick it really hard. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back and watch this later because I want to see him kick it. So when we deal with a Ken Burns, we're really dealing with the exact same structure. White funding, people who want to talk about the American experience, uh, people who want an, an, an American narrative that is complicated, but has emotional resonance that leads to hegemony. So we can watch Ken Burns' Ali with Keith David narrating, and Keith David had to narrate this one, right? There was no way he wasn't going to narrate this one. Um, and you could take him out and just put Julian Bond in, right? And you could be watching Henry Hampton. And that's that's how we get the kind of, of painting between the lines that, if I'm going to be really frank, the people who are Black Lives Matter not only understood, but then decided to implement to their benefit. Because as Elaine Brown said, you know, Black Lives Matter is only a call for respect. It's only a call to be acknowledged. You know, I, I, I once talked with Dr. Ball about this because, you know, I'm, I'm a big comics fan. So I talked about Captain America and the Winter Soldier. And I pointed out to him, I said, you know what's interesting about the ending of it? The white people get reparations, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, John Walker, who, who, who kills, right, with, with the Captain America's flag and puts blood on the Captain America's uh, shield and puts blood on the shield. He gets a new job, right? By, uh, by Contessa, right? The evil shield. He gets reparations. Sharon Carter, right? Who um, is, you know, out, you know, she's, she's uh, an outlaw now, whatever. She gets everything back, including her back pay and her position, all of that, even though she's now an undercover player. She gets reparations. So the white people in Captain America and Winter Soldier gets reparations. But what does um, the brother Isaiah Bradley get? Isaiah Bradley, who they upgrade from the comics, because in the comics, he was the first black Captain America and he became this kind of uh, vegetable, right? But in, in the show, they upgrade him and they make him a political prisoner. So what does he get? Does he get any reparations? Does he get any back funds? Does he get any, any um, um, reinstatement? Does he get any public apology the way Sharon Carter got? No. What he gets is a small section in the Smithsonian. He gets recognition, while the whites get reparations. So we're clear that this Henry Hampton thing worked. And so it wasn't surprising that they had to pick a new Henry Hampton. And so being that now everything is about having high credentials, Harvard, Yale, and all this stuff, you got, you know, Kendi winning the, the uh, um, Genius Award, right? Because Kendi is the intellectual version of ta Coates, right? Right. So, so he's, he's the official... Tanahasi coach, he's got the degrees, he got the, you know, he's done the studies. So it's it's not, you know, shocking to think that, oh, well, we've got to give the next Henry Hampton role to our top black person. And that person is Skip Gates. 
And so Skip Gates gets to literally walk through American history. If you remember watching his Eisner Prize, because he did an Eisner Prize series type series, he literally walks with his cane through American history. And where does that walk lead? That walk leads right to the Obama White House, just so we're not confused on what ideas are being promoted. I don't think I've seen that one, but... <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Um, I think it was, what, Many Rivers to Wonders Cross, of the African like World. What's that? Oh. Wonders of the African World. No, no, I'm talking about the one he did with Eisner, well, he did his own Eisner Prize. Wonders of the African World was bad enough. <laughs> oh, so he was walking with a cane in that one, too? Oh, he did, yeah. He walked no, with, with a cane in, in Wonders of the African Oh, he's walking with a cane in all of them, but he did a whole series from slavery to Obama. Wow. Um, he's oh, right. Wonders was years before Obama. Yeah, Wonders right, was years, course, years right. before. But it was something like, um, I forgot what it was. It was, it was something like, um, I, I, I don't know. You guys will look it up after I finish. But, but the point is, his walk, where does his walk lead to? His walk leads to Obama. His walk leads mm-hmm. to the White House. So, so these folks are clear. And again, these are all the same funders. So they're clear on the analysis that they want to give, right? So nothing ever on the Black Liberation Army or the Black radical groups, nothing even really on the deacons of self-defense, maybe sometimes a sentence or two, maybe, right? But, but the, the <clears throat> ideological lines are very clearly drawn. And, and that's why, like I said, when I was watching Ali with Ken Burns, I said, this could have been a black side production. The Gates is called The African-Americans. And Thank I think you. that's the subtitle, right? The Many Rivers Across. I think that's what it's right. right. Thank right. you. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. That's oh, what it's called. Wait, 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 wait. Is it, like, the African-Americans, is that a docuseries? Mm-hmm. Yes. Documentary, yep. And that was, I, think, I felt like I saw that one. I'm it sure was, you did. They aired it enough. I feel like it, I remember thinking it was. I thought it was a weird title, and it's on its own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube too. It gets circulated. Oh yeah. Yo, you know what? When I was in college, my very, very, very first college class, a good class called Cultural Pluralism in America. Now I didn't know what it was. It was a community college, right? And we had to read this book. I forgot who it was by. I don't remember the title, but it ended up just dropping the class because I just didn't. I couldn't really understand this class. It was this old white guy who taught it. And the book we had to read had every chapter was named after some sort of ethnic group in America, right? So it had the Irish was like a title, the Italians, the British, the um, Japanese, the Chinese. Then it had the Puerto Ricans, the Mexicans. That was it. No other... And then for then after that it was the blacks. It didn't have like the Caribbeans. It didn't have the African Americans. The blacks. The blacks. So I'm just saying. So when I saw that title, the African Americans, it just kind of hit me weird. Like when the first time I saw that book and I saw those chapters written like that, it just felt. It already felt wrong on its own. Like just that on its own. Just like I knew there's some bullshit about to be in this movie. Well, you know, just just to say this, and I'm going to go. A key scene of that is when Gates, who hates the Black Power movement, he does, he hates the Black Power and the Black radical tradition. When he talks about all the Black people who start to expatriate to Ghana, what he emphasizes is that after two to three years, he said, because he said they, they all threw their passports in the ocean. And he says two to three years, years later, he said, fishermen would come showing up early in the morning and they would see these dark shadows by the ocean. And he said those were the African-Americans trying to find their passports. <laughs> That's the respect he gives to Pan-Africanism. 
All right, gang. Look, this was wonderful. I will I will definitely check out the rest of this. Um, thank you so much. And Thanks for joining I really us. Appreciate being able to talk to all of you. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, Thanks. Thank uh, I want to add something real quick to the last thing he said. Uh, in general, sure. I've noticed in a lot of Henry Louis Gates stuff that he has this kind of uh, anti-African uh, enmity. So I can I'm not surprised that he would do that because I mean, have you guys ever seen that? clip i don't remember which of his documentaries this is from but he sits there and he talks with um i think it's uh a chieftain from ghana and they were talking about they're giving him this kind of um homecoming speech about you know we're so glad when our brothers come back you know uh you were taken from us and whatever <laughs> and he's there and he's got this look on his face he's like <laughs> he's probably wearing his Harvard t-shirt man. yeah he's just sitting there and when I was watching it I'm like why is this looking salty like that right and then uh, he just gets up he's like okay whatever and then after he leaves uh, he goes to the camera he's like yeah I don't know what all that means but at the end of the day y'all sold us and he just basically just fucking shit, shit the guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's, a, he's a huge proponent of the African sold us to theory and thesis yeah. and approach and he's made his career as he's self-defined I mean my I always thought it was such a, a, um, a wild admission on his part that would punish him but apparently it, it, it has not gone that way it's worked in his favor but he, he years ago called himself an intellectual entrepreneur which i just i mean and that's his phrase he's used it repeatedly ever since and i and i thought at the time and this is 20 years ago i thought man when people see this it'll be easy to expose them now but but you know people really either misinterpret i think misinterpret what he's saying or don't or never hear it or or don't understand it but he's saying i'm gonna i'm selling this history in whatever form necessary to the highest bidder i think what you misjudged is that the rest of the culture would meet him where he was so i think <laughs> if you were to say that now people look at it as uh aspirational like i yeah. think the problem is not that they don't understand it i think that they understand it but what they don't understand is that that's a bad thing to be you know so, you, either way you're so 30, right i mean 33 years ago Henry Louis Gates was known as that wait, guy. Wait, wait, wait. What are you still doing here? <laughs> I'm about to go. Okay, 33 years ago, he was known as this guy who defended two live crew. Yeah. Then he decides to be known as the guy who's going to defend uh, white America from, quote, black anti-Semitism, unquote. And he gets two-thirds of a New York, two-thirds of a New York Times op-ed page attacking what he calls black anti-Semites. And he includes in that John Henry Clark. Mm-hmm. And that's all you need to know about Gates. And on, and on that, I, I I will leave. But but again, I'll check you guys out later. <laughs> I wasn't rushing you off. I'm just if you want to stay. All right. <laughs> oh damn! Oh damn! All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.